It's the first day you feel a chill run through the air. I'll pick you up at nine, okay? Be ready. Maybe the first day a crisp leaf shatters underfoot. You're back at school after a mostly uneventful summer, save for the ecstasy of ice cream on a New Jersey boardwalk. You're 13. You are a weirdo, and you don't have many friends, but one of your closest among them invites you over to watch Toonami. Next up, going to school is pretty tough. Not really, Tom. Well, it is when you're the class. A strange metal man who vibes of not giving a shit introduces the Chunin exams arc in Naruto. There's practically no movement in most scenes, and the writing seems tailor-made to stall for the probably overworked animators, but you're too 13 to notice how bad it is. Animation standards are different in Japan, a place you have no meaningful conception of, so the jets of blood startle you, but they also rouse an unfamiliar excitement in you. These aren't just cartoons. These are mature, you think. Somehow, in 10 years, this leads to 24-hour lo-fi radio, the birth of several profitable record labels, and a generational retreat into cultural consumption to bomb a creeping apocalypse. You are listening to Automated Beat Machine. Okay, well, not quite. There's a lot of distance between Toonami and the subculture of lo-fi. But what I hope to do here is paint a portrait of the weird marriage of anime and hip-hop that ultimately led to a new wave of record labels like College Music, a river springing from Japanese animation, winding into hip-hop culture, and finally discharging into the irradiated waters of the internet. We'll look at this story and how it influenced the trajectory of hip-hop, became a profitable new genre for some enterprising labels, and is, in my opinion, one of the weirdest, most compelling marriages of culture in music. Even more, it stands out as an avatar of loneliness, an escapist subculture that exists in comment sections and chat rooms, giving its participants transient catharsis, but never the tangible tethers of community that can lift them from digital isolation. Chapter 1 so this story isn't really about anime, but the echoes of its aesthetics are everywhere here, interlacing with other alternative subcultures and forming a rich tapestry of niche communities on the internet that work together to... Oh, fuck it. Until recently, anime was a relatively niche interest, and even though it's breached the mainstream in some ways, Recently-ish, for example, Neon Genesis Evangelion made it to Netflix and exploded in popularity. For much of its history, anime was at best a nerd's interest and at worst, an otaku's obsession, to the detriment of their social skills, sex life, and, uh, hygiene. But in 1997, Cartoon Network introduced its Toonami programming block. At the time, it was hard to reliably access anime even if you wanted to. The internet's infrastructure at the time wasn't quite robust enough to support either reliable legal or illegal access to large video files, and even if you could, who would translate for you? At best, you could rely on a smattering of VHS tapes at local video rentals or the odd live broadcast. So for a lot of teens and preteens, this was their introduction to anime, 
The way Toonami composed the block was ingenious, almost a little devious. Toonami was originally conceived as an action block, which included Western animation. But Trojan horse-like, Toonami managed to smuggle in and be a reliable access point for Japanese animation. Shows like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball were early favorites, but after Toonami had established itself as an institution, it had and used the power to create original shows. FLCL, or Fooly Cooly, is my personal standout. I didn't even realize I had seen it until 10 or 12 years later when I rewatched it, when anime became cool, at least in a narrow sense of the term. Note that at this point I had hardly seen an anime since those fateful Naruto sessions in 2006. I believe Akira was the only one I watched in college, while having a severe weed panic attack and asking my friends if we'd be arrested if I called for an ambulance, and the boondocks was the next closest thing. FLCL was impossible to forget. Between the experimental animation, surrealist plot, and most importantly here, the incredible nostalgic soundtrack supplied by the pillows, FLCL was a true cult hit. I will here be saying FLCL instead of Fooly Cooly. I just sound so silly saying Fooly Cooly over and over. It's a testament to the incredible influence of the show that, as its first viewers are coming of age, diving into an uncertain adulthood in stupid and alienating times, Toonami, really Adult Swim, Production IG, and Toho came together to produce two spin-offs to FLCL in Progressive and Alternative, both featuring protagonists that are disaffected in their own ways, both alluding to genres of music. As a show where the heroes and villains alike swing Rickenbackers and Gibsons like literal axes, Progressive and Alternative are somewhat cloying in how they deliberately evoke their past selves and invite an unwelcome comparison to the original. The original season of FLCL released in early 2000, when I was seven. Its scrambled stupidity and its sticky nostalgia still understood maturity, growing up, a future, as an inevitability and something with promise of itself, even if it meant learning to live without some comforts. This theme played better before 9-11, and particularly before the 2008 financial collapse. Pitchfork's Philip Sherburn identifies the er lo-fi of the late 2000s and the modern lo-fi beats genres as malaised reactions to that financial collapse. His descriptions of both are quite helpful, though I don't agree with either in full, so I'll quote them here. Of Chill Wave, Sherburn says, Back in the doldrums of the late 00s, chill was a novel proposition, not so much an aspiration as an escape. As America reeled from the collapse of entire sectors of the economy, Young folks across the country burrowed into their bedrooms, fired up their laptops, and worked out their nostalgia with woozy new wave synths, tape warp samples, narcoleptic drum patterns, and hazy vocals hiding more than a smidgen of ennui beneath all that blissed-out reverb. Young people's reaction to a staggering upset of the present and an obliteration of their futures was to dive into the past, unabashedly. Their focus on chill, of slowness and haze, is a childhood memory given form. For me, those memories feel like syrupy humidity, slow summers where I could, free of homework, stay up later than I was actually allowed and sweat in phlegmatic midnight heat, wake up under a groggy film, but still look forward to living. To match, to meet their moments, FLCL progressive and alternative would have had to understand that there is no resolution, no expectations of what the future might bring. To be dramatic, we could say that there is no future. But progressive and alternative are a bit too self-aware, their audience a bit too media-savvy for them to be pure nostalgia. Though there are yet two more seasons slated to release, grunge and shoegaze. As a result, they sit in an awkward middle space. Too late to resonate, too self-conscious to sell out. 
But Hidomi Hibajiri, the apathetic co-protagonist from Progressive, could well be the endlessly looping anime girl on a 24-hour chill-hop stream, staring vacantly at her ceiling. Headphones casting swimming colors on her walls while bustling city hums and moves and moves and races its quick thrumming heartbeat outside her window. If only progressive and alternative were, you know, better. Cultural critics and theorists often point to the endless return of the old, the same subjects, as examples of what Mark Fisher called the slow cancellation of the future. The MCU and its focus-grouped plots, quips, and inability to leave a serious moment untouched by a character's gaffe, Star Wars's shameless rehashing of the original trilogy, pop music's apparent obsession with sounds ripped from the 80s and 90s, lo-fi music itself. I agree with these criticisms to a point, but they reek of anglocentrism. My view is a bit rosier. Directors like Bong Joon-ho, the niche but culturally significant popularity of hyper-pop artists, aesthetes in their own right, the constant innovation of rap artists that often goes unnoticed to those not enmeshed in its culture, the surge in diaspora art, notably the incredible, low-budgeted, everything, everywhere, all at once. All of these cut through the cultural malaise in a meaningful, lasting way that their hegemonic counterparts likely won't. However, the fact that the highest earning cultural products and the ones with ubiquitous media presence constantly call back does point to a lack of vision of the future. This reached its apotheosis in Spider-Man No Way Home, an entertaining movie that nonetheless relied on uncut nostalgia as its major selling point. The emphatic nerd sitting behind you gasping and whooping at Tobey Maguire reprising his role as Spider-Man as if his appearance was unexpected in any way. Lo-Fi is an avatar of this retreat. As an aesthetic movement, there was one show that premiered on Toonami that did more than influence Lo-Fi and the marriage between anime and hip-hop. It defined it. Chapter 2 Shinichiro Watanabe is one of the cult kings of anime, though I'm sure some would bristle that I'd even call him cult at this stage. His directorial debut was Cowboy Bebop, and while it still isn't recognized as Dragon Ball might be, unlike Dragon Ball, the show was met with near universal praise. Rotten Tomatoes has it at a full 100% fresh for all pro critics. Incidentally, one of its echoes, a live-action adaptation, was produced by Netflix. Another rehash. Cowboy Bebop is a kaleidoscopic pastiche, a hybrid of the best sci-fi, western, and noir writing. Critics contemporary to the show took note of the wild and immaculate stylization. Fans often bandy about the words masterpiece or opus. In this case, the critics did too. Keith Ree, writing in 1998, said that, The most notable aspect of the show is its style. On one hand, there is the eclectic and stylized jazz-inspired soundtrack. Composed by music prodigy Kano Yoko, the horn blasts, bongo drums, and general ambience of the music are a much welcome change from all the sugary J-pop tunes of most anime features. Naruto screaming, crying, throwing up there, continuing. On the other hand, there are the sharp and nicely animated visuals, with well-blended CG, stylized characters and unique mechanical direction. It was clear then that Watanabe was a master of the full product, an auteur able to sew a work of fiction together with a brilliant needle, threading art, plot, animation, and music together into a seamless whole, and he and his team did this while blending discrete genres together in a way that hadn't been done before in animation. Much more interesting to our topic of chill-hop weirdness, though, is Watanabe's later Samurai Shamblu, where Cowboy Bebop blended jazz, noir, westerns, and sci-fi, Samurai Shamblu more explicitly soldered together a Japanese-American pastiche. 
basically a hip-hop samurai show. And Shamplu did meet its moment. Premiering in 2004, the two male protagonists are empty, traveling with one another only to see who could kill who first once they arrive at their journey's end. Although it is set in the Edo period, the show is nonetheless, like Cowboy Bebop before it, highly anachronistic. Cuts take place in sync with DJ scrubbing, characters curse each other out as pieces of shit. Think you might have tossed it a little too far? He doesn't know the meaning of restraint. Kiss my ass. Take a look at the first fight scene from the show, linked in the description. Mugen, a wandering rogue, could have been ripped from a cynical American action show. Mugen walks in on a band of samurai bodyguards who in turn are threatening to cut off their waitress's fingers for spilling tea. Mugen negotiates her rescue and recklessly hurls himself at all of them for the price of 50, no, 100 dumplings. He has none of the panache or restraint one would expect of a samurai. The show even remarks on this. The band of samurai call him anachronistic, and a few seconds later he's jumping off walls and doing breakdance leg sweeps on his opponents. He takes his time and enjoys the fight, asking the now terrified band to bring him more opponents. Cut through this is the Ronin Jeans fight with the local magistrate's other bodyguards. He plays foil to Mugen in his American style, stepping in as the samurai prepare to kill a peasant, tossing his hat in the air and, before it lands, killing them easily. The consummate samurai badass to contrast Mugen's wild and anachronistic death-seeking. All of this is set to music composed by the late, great Nujabes, Sebajun, the OG chill-hop legend who died tragically at 36 in 2010 in a car crash. For an impressive and exhaustive biography of Nujabes' short life, I recommend you check out Steve M's video, Who is Nujabes? I'll be pulling some of the biographical bits to follow from that video and other sources linked in the description to this app. The video also includes some delightful info on Nujabes' production process and equipment that would, unfortunately, be tangential to this episode, but as someone who's interested in that kind of thing, I thought I'd mention it. But the long and short of it is that Nujabes was THE pioneer of chill hop, jazz hop, and all their associated tendencies. He was, of course, involved in production and DJing before Shamplu. Collaborations with the British rapper Funky DL and the Japanese-American Shingo 2 constituted some of his most remarkable work before the show, showcasing his preference for mixing rare analog jazz samples with modern hip-hop bars. Watanabe invited Jun to work on Shamplu through Jun's indie record label, Hideout Productions. And if you listen to even just the title theme, Battle Cry, Chillhop's roots stand out. In Battle Cry, we have a repetitive, head-bobbing beat accented with a dead-sounding snare, and all enshrouded in a lo-fi drone that gives the track a hazy air, induced either from drugs or boredom, or one to escape the other. The track gets its livelihood from discordant piano stabs and the insistent rapping on top, here delivered by Shing O2. But even the words here drip apathy. Some days, some nights, some live, some die in the way of the samurai a strange detachment from the bloody reality they describe. The ending theme to Shampoo also exudes melancholy. Even with more vitality and explicit melody to the vocal line and more variation in the drum track, the repetitive minor guitar riff and the flat intangibility of the chords backing everything lend a feeling of creeping exhaustion. The lyrics are pastoral and melancholy. There is something very much disaffected about the show too. Mugen with his obvious death wish and Jin with his detached demeanor form a cynical core to the show. In the first episode, the duo are sentenced to death, and rather than accept a life of groveling, Mugen says, If living means bowing down to the likes of you bastards, I'd rather die on my feet with my head held high. 
<laughs> well said. I agree with him. No future. It's only Foo, the waitress Mugen saved earlier on the promise of 100 dumplings, and the emotional core of the show that stops Champloo from collapsing under the weight of its cynicism that defies their fate. That's Chillhop, at least in ethos. Repetitive beats with a note of hope in the face of a world that will give you no dignity. 60-hour work weeks, plod along, jobs that are essential but servile, plod along, the gig economy, plod, homework, plod, climate change, Zoom classes, COVID, teams meetings, mass death, epidemic loneliness, plod along with the mind-numbing stupidity, maybe out of hope or out of spite, or just because that's where the beat takes you. Lo-Fi makes constant callbacks to mid-2000s media for a generation ready to escape back into monologues from Kung Fu Panda, samples from Toonami commercial buffers, looping clips of rain pattering against a city window. Creating a rigorous taxonomy of the Lo-Fi loner would be a long-term ethnographic project, but I do think there's enough to create a compelling profile. Comments abound on Lo-Fi videos reflecting feelings that life is simply too fast. One comment on Lo-Fi Girls, 1am study session, book emoji, open bracket, Lo-Fi Hip Hop slash Chill Beats, close bracket, which is currently sitting at 65 million views, reads, I wish I could go back time when I was a child, nothing to worry about. Just pure happiness. Nothing even feels the same anymore. This is the only place I could feel true peace in. The music has a different vibe to it. It feels just so good. Hopefully everything goes well. I wish everyone in this comment section good luck to whatever hardships in life they face. In that, lo-fi is a reaction to the overwhelming pace of life, like countless other reactions to it in the past. The slow food movement in Italy, laying flat in China, Neats, Hikikomori. For a number of reasons, quantifying loneliness can be a difficult proposition. But to put some numbers behind what I've essentially described as a cultural vibe up to this point, NPR reports that three in five Americans feel lonely, not just lonely sometimes, but as a pervasive life condition. Other studies similarly tend to hover around the 60% mark, with young and old populations tending to be the most adversely affected. LGBT plus people and immigrants are also disproportionately lonely. In 2018, CNN reported an estimated 500,000 young people in Japan as hikikomori, a moniker for extreme social alienation where the hikikomori effectively drops out of society entirely. Workers all over the world are increasingly railroaded into precarious gig work. In 2021, Pew Research reported that 16% of Americans had earned money from some form of online gig platform, though this number alone doesn't fully describe the form of precarity in the labor market. Contract jobs, lack of job security, don't factor into this particular study. More and more people are exhausted, earning less, all while getting less fulfillment out of life. However, this description is just to give shape to the issue. We can't describe our relationships to the world purely through employment. Hartmut Rosa, a contemporary social theorist, describes alienation from society, lack of fulfillment, no future, quite evocatively, as a condition where the world no longer speaks to us. As he says, and I'm actually going to read this quote out because I like it. All subjects in the course of our lives experience constitutive moments of resonance in which our wire to the world begins to vibrate intensely, in which our relationship to the world begins to breathe. Alienation in the sense of a mute, cold, rigid, or failed relationship to the world is, then, the result of a damaged subjectivity. 
social and object configurations that are hostile to resonance, or an imbalance or lack of compatibility in the relation between a given subject and some segment of the world. Many people I've talked to describe college as a time when the relationship to the world seemed to sing, though maybe that's because all my friends are dyed-in-the-wool academia dorks. Still, I think it's worth it to look at the years people spend in college as a model of what could be done right. Walkable communities, built-in social functions, independence balanced with enmeshment. Some may counter, well, that's just not how the real world works. Attending college is a privilege. In response to that cold, joyless vision of the world, I say, maybe it should be how the world works. At any rate, one lo-fi YouTube channel called Cyros takes this alienation and longing for slowness for something more meaningful and makes it explicit. Most of the video titles are stream-of-consciousness first-person, often grasping at finding meaning in mundane things, beauty and sadness, or maybe just strung out. The most popular, I don't feel like doing anything right now, and others like cold Sunday mornings. When I get sad, I drink bubble tea, it cheers me up a lot. It would be nice if things could stay like this forever. I think she actually likes me, and if you cry in the rain, no one can see your tears. Whew, that's uh, that last one. Definitely a little too on the news in terms of things I did in high school and college to extract meaning out of my own depression. Cyrus embraces some sort of pastel pastiche of Japan-influenced chill-hop aesthetics, with an emphasis on the everyday beauties and struggles one might encounter. True to form, the songs are hypnotic and nostalgic. While I don't know that I could comfortably say that people form a community around it in a meaningful sense, these videos, Cyrus's in particular, offer a place where individuals in an atomized society can sound off, a public forum for collective hardships that we nonetheless suffer alone. Some comments read, You know how people get that nice, long, and just right feeling hug? Like you genuinely love that person? I just want that. Listen to this type of music makes me feel that. I just want to have a hug where I feel loved by another other than my family. I just want someone to give me that type of hug. I thought what I needed to fix myself was time to myself, when that's all I've been given. I just want someone, something, to love me. I don't want to be alone, I just want someone. Another. Wish I could hug everyone in the comments because we're all feeling the same way. And another. Fun fact, you can't breath when you smile. JK, I just wanted to make you smile. Heart emoticon. <laughs> this one knows their audience anyway. Far be it from me to make some kind of grand social diagnosis from all this, but the fact is that there's something about chill hop that attracts people who want to turn off the madness outside and slow down, to see the meaning in life without having to grind every day. Of course it's paired with 3am study sessions. It offers solace from them. It is the strung out soundtrack that grasps her life's essential beauty amid the dumbest reality on offer. Or... It's smooth jazz for 20-somethings. Back to Sherburn's genre taxonomy, he describes lo-fi study beats as a mutant niche outgrowth of chill wave and says, Sometimes known as lo-fi beats to study to, or lo-fi hip-hop, lo-fi study beats, not to be confused with lo-fi house, is what happens when a generation raised on mood-based playlists definitively stops caring about what it listens to. Marked by pokey tempos, cloying piano or guitar melodies, erzatz vinyl hiss, and other signifiers of inoffensive chill, and typically accompanied on YouTube by twee, anime-inspired illustrations of domestic solitude, lo-fi study beats is the musical, equivalent of a white noise coloring book. In the new millennium, even background music, like selling out before it, lost all negative connotations.
I think Sherburn is right on when he levies some fire at mood-based playlists and the vacuousness that so-called Spotify core encourages in songwriting. On this very podcast, episode two is Spotify Surveillance. We discuss how Spotify's monopolistic power over streaming literally changes the way artists write songs. The material result is a glut of mood core songs, not really meant to leave a particular impression, but to jockey their way onto mood playlists and elbow their way up the algorithm. Queen College's Gary Gumpert describes Muzak in a way that could well have been written about the more incurious, dispassionate examples of lo-fi. Muzak is music that is put in a laundromat. It's been bathed, and all of its passion gotten rid of. It's there, it doesn't make a wave. It's just a kind of amniotic fluid that surrounds us, and it never startles us. It is never too loud, it is never too silent, it's always there. And yeah, lo-fi radio and playlists never seem to breach a certain level of lucidity that more deliberate intentional playlist making or album writing would. The songs flow into one another, never really standing out individually because the identity of lo-fi is to blend into the background. Samples from Toonami cartoons and detuned seventh chords are the somewhat uninspired par for the course. But I think lo-fi's lasting appeal and import is at least in part because of its slowness, its repetition. Back to Rosa, he diagnoses modernity with the paradoxical disease of frenetic standstill, a state where people experience time in the world as a great rush of tasks, of life events, of historical upheavals that yet changed nothing. In spite of the rush, the world remains rigid. Themes of home constantly come up in studies on loneliness. Susan Schwartz's mid-pandemic study, COVID-19, Precarity, and Loneliness, outlines a middle-aged subject she calls Ronald, who, in a crisis of self-identity, realizes he has no place he feels he belongs. In fact, both Rose's frenetic standstill and the constant references to a lack of home in research on loneliness can both be expressions of a social sense of no future. An impossible and overwhelming deluge of events without direction, steering, or respite in a place called home. Much more comprehensively, Anne Allison's seminal Precarious Japan covers the lives of a young Japanese precariat, or haken, temp workers who drift from day job to day job with no sense of future, sleeping in net cafes or comic shops for a nominal fee and even more nominal comforts. One of these haken, interviewed by the Japanese journalist Mizushima Hiroki, puts her view of the world bleakly. On the day she turned 18, the woman featured in the documentary told Mizushima that she had no hopes for the future and tried to void desire altogether. She said, I'm trying to make do with a life absent of desire, to be content with just a place to sleep, a job. No future. As Allison puts it, bear life as the limits of existence. Aimless ambling at the end of the world. Lo-fi fulfills the need for deceleration and the need for home and community, at least in an acute, transient way. Lo-fi is an escape into the past, the samples of old cartoons triggering a rush of nostalgia for a time when things seemed slower, when home was a place easily identified. The down-tempo trappings of the genre are a literal slowing down of the listener's pace of life. Though there is general melancholia about lo-fi music, it's still inoffensive enough not to provoke real resistance in the listener. One commenter calls it the right kind of sad. Not a Mitski provoking real introspection, not an Aesop rock twisting about $10 vocab with mischievous wordplay, not even a pop banger to evoke dance floor lust. Just a head-bobbing, room-filling deceleration of reality.
Let me clarify that not all lo-fi is artless. I hope my praise for Nujabes earlier made that clear. But the approach to this type of background music necessarily guides producers into such tropes. To the extent that artists active in the genre long enough tend to distance themselves from the label. It isn't just the musical attributes that make lo-fi music for a loner's solace though. It's the medium itself. Conveniently, 24-hour lo-fi streams on YouTube have a built-in live chat. Stalking these streams early in the morning, I found a strange menagerie of personas, conversations, emotions, people greeting one another from other sides of the world, a seeming contingent of regulars asking one another, geez, do y'all live here? LOL. A strange openness afforded by anonymity where users felt free to tell a stream of 35,000 people their sorrows and comfort one another in turn. The Verge reports that lo-fi stream viewership exploded early in the pandemic, with users tuning into channels like Lo-Fi Girl and College Music in droves. Online content of all forms experienced unprecedented growth in those months, naturally, but those lo-fi streams seem to address the specific problem of finding community. People on these streams typically fall in the 18 to 35 age bracket. But the formation of these communities presents a qualitative difference with other types of community. The usually transient nature of these connections, the lack of physical contact, while these things don't necessarily and completely preclude the possibility of forming deep connection, they certainly aren't points in its favor either. In Loneliness and Love in Late Modernity, the authors identify a typology of loneliness, separating sheer number of connections from quality of connections, having relationships that fulfill one's needs. Lo-fi does address those needs, though again, transiently. Matthew Perpetua, a prolific music writer who began his daily Flux blog project in 2002 and has barely missed a beat since, looks at cultural trends as cycles of musical utility, and lo-fi has a utility uniquely suited to its moment. Aside from the retreat into a pre-recession type of nostalgia, this utility manifested palpably when lockdown began in many countries as lo-fi immediately adapted its anime avatars, if they weren't already, to reflect the circumstances of social distancing, of work from home. Chat rooms bubbled with those trapped, supporting one another from across the world. Allison identifies Fukushima as the metaphorical locus of this muck for Japan, the catastrophic trauma that precipitated the more mundane but equally harmful daily immiseration of loneliness and precarity. For youth in the U.S., these traumas played out in multiples over the course of the Bush administration. 9-11, the criminal bloodletting of the Middle East on false pretenses that followed, and the real blow of no future the 2008 financial crisis. Grafton Tanner's babbling corpses identifies the reaction to this, the eternal rehashing of the past as pre-recession nostalgia, though he typically traces and includes 9-11 in this analysis. Barack Obama's campaign of hope and change, riding into the presidency on the colossal wave of popular mandate, promised an emergency exit from the revanchist tendencies and future failures of the Bush years, but except for some tepid, easily dismantled stopgaps, largely fell flat. This seemed to confirm a pervasive sense of no future for those that had, like myself, been heavily invested in Obama's supermajority, despite not yet even having the franchise. I remember the deflated energy of our high school Democrats club as we sat around a table, glum, until someone said, we're changing our name to the Social Democrats. But it isn't enough to convene in misery to rid yourself of it, though it is often a balm. Writing for Dazed, Kemi Alemaru calls Lo-Fi one of the kindest communities online. This may be true, but kindness and conversation isn't enough if we understand loneliness not as an individual affliction, 
but as a collective social ill, and I believe we should. I agree with Olivia Sagan when she argues that part of the problem of understanding loneliness as a collective issue is both the nature of the problem, solitude, and the stigmas surrounding its discussion. It would be easy to turn this into a hackneyed, we're all on our phones all the time, but we're more alone than ever, analysis. But with bodies and minds racked with anxiety about the future, burned out despite ever-increasing convenience, lonely despite the sheer availability of connection, we deserve a better answer. Better than the banal platitudes of put down your phone, go out and meet people. Loneliness, precarity, nostalgia, acceleration, no future. Unmoored from a sense of purpose and meaning, unmoored from a physical space tied to memories and the feelings of somehow being able to slow down, constantly hustling to skirt the threat of homelessness, we retreat into cultural avatars as balm to the madness. I don't have the audacity to assert that I alone have the fix to this, but I do understand that undoing decades of austerity politics, giving people security and allowing them to pursue a life that is meaningful for them, these are powerful antidotes to this contradictory sense of staggering activity where somehow nothing meaningful happens. A collective vision of the future that is informed by the beauty we imagine in a nostalgic past, a vision of slowness, of connection, is how we get there. This has been Automated Beat Machine. Thank you for listening. This episode was made by me, with theme music and production assistance by Alex DePasquale, script assistance from Greg Ekstrom, and Jacob Cook, and artwork by Jimmy Christian. I know everyone says it, I'm going to say it too. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review on the podcast app of your choice. It really does help, and I'm not above begging. So please do it. The show is supported by Atwood Magazine. Please be sure to check out the excellent journalism going on on that site. And if you want to keep up with all the detritus floating around in my brain, follow me on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.